Hello, we are back with our December issue. Wait, November. November. It's our November. Oh, well, sorry, I'm jumping but ahead it's of myself. Releasing in December. <laughs> yeah. I'm Rod Gerardo. I'm Ellen and Cisco. We're research residents at Cincinnati Children's. Uh, again, we have three articles that we're going to feature. But these are ones that <laughs> may make me change what I do every day. So I, I thought that those was those were the the, the worthy ones for, for these talks. Handpicked from one of the editors, one of everyone's favorite editor. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Pablo Laje. I'm one of the attending surgeons at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So the first article is called Central Line Placement at, at ECMO Decannulation, a Missed Opportunity. And this is out of the University of Michigan. This was uh, a single institution retrospective study. I think I think it's important to say the main question here is, should we go ahead and place a central line at the time of ECMO decannulation, because a lot of times I think, I think common practice is not to do that. 40% ultimately required a central venous line within 30 days after ECMO decannulation. Which is probably a lot. Um, here's what Todd thought. Almost never. That's what, um, I, that's what I suspected. And of. that is why I think this is a single institution experience because that's just the way they do it there. But I will tell you, that it, I've worked at multiple institutions. So I've worked at five children's hospitals, considering, you know, including where I trained. Um, and I think I've had to do that twice. And I've never had to go back and reinsert a line afterwards. I mean, you can also kind of turn it around, say 60% didn't need it after a month, or at least that's how Dr. Lahe kind of saw it. The typical case of whether you want to see things on this side of the coin or the opposite side of the coin, you may say, well, you know, if, if you have 40% of babies needing a central line sometime after the cannulation, you should actually put it on all of them because you know 40% will need it. Or you can say the opposite, only 40% will need one. So why would you, you know, put a line in the other 60%, right? Perhaps it's not surprising to those listening and, and neonates. Uh, you know, babies less than 28 days, they primarily needed it for access. A lot of them are CDH babies. And then in the older children or babies, the primary reason for needing a line after ECMO decannulation was hemodialysis. If you just need access, then just use a pick line. So really this is about a trend that in older patients, leaving a central line maybe reasonable because they'll need hemodialysis more often. Maybe to pose yourself the question at the time of the cannulation, at least to make sure that the baby will not need a central line shortly after it. You know, if there is a borderline situation, maybe that's a good idea. Dr. Lahe did point out that, you know, this may not change his practice, but it would make him kind of think more about the possibility of needing a central line later down the road at the time of decannulation. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Not every kid needs a central line, but maybe we should consider it for those patients who maybe are a little bit more sick than others. Now, now that I read this, I will take a closer look at every case and say, well, the baby doesn't need it now, so I'm not gonna put it for sure, but are we all sure that you know the baby is not going to benefit from it in the in the next few days? Oh, and if you want to read this article, 
scroll down under the media player. We're going to give you the link to it. Uh, so you could read along with us while we talk about them. Yeah. Uh, so this one's called Thoracoscopic Surgery for Congenital Lung Malformations. Does Previous Infection Really Matter? And this one is from Paris. Excuse me. It was from multiple places, mainly Paris, but someone's from Egypt. This one was uh, pretty interesting, I think, for multiple reasons. One is if the listener hasn't already heard our hour-long podcast on CPAMs from a few months ago, definitely jump out of here and listen to that. It's called The Full Story on CPAMs. And I think we kind of touched on this a little bit, but now this is, we get to do a deep dive on this specifically. But yeah, this was a retrospective study and they were basically looking at uh, patients over a nine-year period who had congenital lung malformations. Well, I think their main question was like, if they, because they divided it by people who had a prior infection versus those who didn't before the resection. This article supports the idea that, you know, a number of patients will will have pneumonias. And when that happens, the indication for the surgery becomes obvious. And when that happens, you know, the surgery is a lot more difficult. I mean, and they, they really co- did a nice comparison. They had like about 30 and 60, you know, 30 with infections before and 60 without infections before. And, you know, every single parameter that you look at, you know, time of the operation, need of transfusions, need for reoperations. More conversions, the operative time was longer. All those things were worse within the group that had previous infections. But there um, weren't any differences with their complications. complications. I'm, I was so worried to hear what the conclusion was going to be. I'm so happy that they concluded this. Listen, here's the story. In general, one of the fears that someone has on doing a thoracoscopic lobectomy is that in a small baby, it's going to be challenging. And so the, the natural instinct is to wait to let them get bigger. So you have more room and more space to do the operation. And that is a fallacy. A lung that was infected is gonna be a more difficult lung to operate on. And the main reason to to do it early is not only is it easier, but you have a much less chance of having an infection beforehand. And so it's clean, pristine, virgin planes. If having an infection before surgery makes it more difficult, then we should operate sooner in order to not give the baby time to have an infection. And sooner is a moving target. So I was trained at six to eight months. Now I'm down to three months. Quite early, actually. Our average in in, in hundreds of these is about eight weeks. Um, So, you know, this we're talking obviously asymptomatic lesions. Um, You know, we let the babies go home, bond with the family, we get a, a follow-up CAT scan around four weeks of age and sometime, you know, around eight, 10 weeks uh, with the elective lobectomy. Got it. So this wasn't necessarily changed what you're already doing. You would, you're already doing it. And they suggest, well, you know, doing it before a year. No, it, it won't change what I what I do, but um, keep thinking that what we do is, is the right thing, which is to, you know, attack these lesions before we before they, they get complicated. Are you going to cut these out early when you're a big, bad pediatric surgeon? Probably. Probably. Once I once I learn how to do the operation and feel confident doing it. Right. There's a lot of steps <laughs> for us to get to that point, I think. Yeah. Perfect. That's great. So then we can just move on for the next next one and you know, just keep doing these. Partial splenectomy in children, long-term reoperative outcomes. 
And this one comes from... I'm Frederick Squirrel, one of the pediatric surgeons from Indianapolis at Riley Hospital for Children. I'm Nellie Hafizi. I'm uh, a current PGY3 at Bay State UMass, um, and I was the previous uh, clinical research fellow at Indiana University. In this article, it was a retrospective review. We basically, we chose to look at our long-term outcomes in partial splenectomy uh, to get a gauge for uh, what happens after these kids uh, continue to grow and uh, continue to um, retain some of that splenic function. When Nilly kind of came up with this, we thought, well, you know, it'd be useful if we could kind of like figure out what our numbers were so we could actually counsel families ahead of time and say, hey, this is the risk. Uh, we reviewed all of the cases and all of the patients who underwent a partial splenectomy. 17 years from 2002 to mm -hmm. 2019. From there, we were able to uh, split up to basically two, two groups. Those who underwent a partial splenectomy and did not require a subsequent reoperation, and those who did undergo the partial and then subsequently underwent a total splenectomy. And how often they needed a cholecystectomy. And they really wanted to do this, which nearly described to, you know, kind of inform their discussion with families. And what we looked at then after we divided into the two groups was we compared um, several metrics. Would there be anything that we can find that that could be a predictor for subsequent reoperation? I'm sorry, what were the indications for these patients? They all had hemolytic anemias of some sort like that. Yeah. I think the most common was hereditary spherocytosis. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The other ones, there were like three patients who had either splenomegaly or hereditary pyropoikilocytosis. So as far as your results, were you were you all surprised? It, it sounds like the about 29% completion rate was similar to other results. Or what, what did you all think of what you ended up finding? The 30% is on the higher end of what's uh, been recorded in the literature um, so far. These partial splenectomies are, are not undergoing completions until years after the initial uh, initial index procedure. And, and from my perspective, it's really good to see this data because I feel like when I talk to a family, I can really tell them, this is the rate that your child will need a subsequent total splenectomy. And you have to make sure that you're worth, you're, you're happy accepting that risk. They can go through the rest of those years where they're fairly high risk for post-splenectomy sepsis, although it's, it's a low risk. Um, with the spleen intact. And if they're willing to do it, then we do it. Even though it says there that partial splenectomy has gained acceptance you know, among pediatric surgeons, I don't think that that represents everybody's practice. I mean, um, at least where, where I work, um, it's very uncommon to do a partial splenectomy. Okay, so the conclusion of this paper is, if you feel comfortable doing a partial splenectomy, it works 70% of the time. But, but then after reading these and, and, and having the good results, uh, I, I thought that this is something that we'll seriously consider. Interesting study. It's good. Anything by Rascorla, I trust. <laughs> he seems pretty cool. If you are listening to this and you are one of the authors for this, these papers, like reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you as well. Otherwise, get ready for next month. We're already gearing up to do our December articles uh podcast so keep an eye out for that can i add one thing you can no. put this back in if you want i would just no, add never. like <laughs> all of these articles are pretty practice-based like dr lahey pointed out things that might actually change your practice but until then i'm rod i'm ellen and remember knowledge should be free nice <laughs>